Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us as people for our good. We'll be looking at the gospel of Matthew for this next several weeks of the Christmas season. Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. Hear from God's holy word. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Sarah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I was at home on the afternoon of, of Thanksgiving Day, and uh, we've got a, a squirrely little guy, so we're trying to figure out how do we do uh, a nice Thanksgiving dinner uh, on, on Thursday afternoon. So it uh, may seem a little bit harsh to some of you, but we actually waited for our youngest to go down, and then we enjoyed a nice uh, sit-down and relaxed meal with our girls, and after we had the Thanksgiving meal, we're kind of just spending time together, and my three girls wanted to watch a a Christmas movie, right, we're now kind of going officially into the Christmas season, 
Our Christmas tree usually goes up sometime around November 1st, but I'm not, I'm not complaining about that, I'm just saying. It's been Christmas for a little bit in our house. We're watching a, a Christmas movie, and a rather girly one at that, which I was happy to do, to, uh, to, to be there with my, my gals. But this was a, a story about a make-believe kingdom in Europe, and it's, it kind of centers on a, a prince and a reporter from America, and something's kind of budding between the two. And, uh, but the issue is that this prince isn't sure if he wants to take the throne. His father has passed away one year earlier, and he's not really sure if uh, he's ready to take that on. He doesn't, he isn't sure if that's what he wants his life to be about, ruling a kingdom. But then an issue arises somewhere in, in, uh, in, in the story, that he actually is not descended from his father by blood. He was an adopted son. They had adopted him, and they had kept that secret. And so there becomes this issue. Is he really the heir to the throne? Because the law had said that he has to be descended by blood from the king. And one of the underlying stories of this movie is that uh, this kingdom kind of needs to get into the 21st century and and get away from their old-fashioned ways. And so the, the law had sort of been secretly changed to allow for the king to, or the prince to become a king, even though he's not descended by blood. He's only descended legally as an adopted son. And I'm thinking about that as I'm thinking about Matthew chapter 1. And, and I'm saying, boy, you know, the, Matthew's genealogy was, was way ahead of, of this story because this is exactly, not exactly, but similar to what we have in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. You have this ancestry of Jesus Christ, but it's a legal ancestry. Because right as you get to the point of Jesus, that line that goes up unto Joseph, who is Jesus' legal father, but not his father by blood, not his biological father, there's a difference in the rhythm. So that Matthew is showing us that this Jesus is certainly has a legal claim to the throne in Israel because this is largely a a kingly ancestry, showing that legally Jesus would have a claim to the throne, but the good news is that Jesus is unlike anyone else in this genealogy. He does not come about the same way that everyone else does. If you remember the old King James in Matthew 1, it was Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob. But then when you get to Joseph and Jesus, you don't have Joseph begot Jesus because he is not born because of an exercise of will of a human being. He was not fathered in that earthly sense. And the reason that Matthew does this right at the beginning of his gospel to tell the greatest story ever told, tell the most important story ever told, is that if This Jesus, if this king was to do what he was sent to do, he could not have been born by normal means. All of the other mere men and mere human beings that had gone before him, no matter how much they could have strived, they never could have done what Jesus did as both God and man. If he were to save the vast multitude of sinners who came before him and after him, this would have to be a God-man. And so Matthew brings all of our attention to this Jesus to remind us of who he is, both God and man, right at the beginning of his gospel to make sure that we have our eyes focused on him when we read the gospel and when we live our lives. So let's consider those things together as we look at this, the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew 1. 
It functions as a, an intro to the book. It functions as, as an intro to something that completely changed all of human history. So verse 1 begins by saying, uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, or the son of Abraham, and the son of David. That uh, word for genealogy hearkens us back to actually the book of Genesis. You know, in Genesis where it says, this is the book of the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then it tells us about the formation of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 2. Really the story that unfolds. Or Genesis 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And then it tells us the the genealogy of those who descended from Adam. And then talks largely of the spread of sin throughout the earth. So this is the story of of Jesus Christ, the story of the generations of Jesus Christ, in order to, to let us know that, that something very significant in human history is happening. It will be a story that ushers in a new era of the world, where the calendar literally hinges upon the event of the life of Jesus Christ. And we still see that sometimes at the year of our Lord, 2020. We don't hear that kind of talk much anymore, and that's not unintentional. But time itself has been Christianized because of how central the story of Jesus is. He is the son of Abraham. And while Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, Matthew traces the line from Abraham. We're given a marker here that the perspective is from the nation of Israel. The the Gospel of Matthew has a distinctly Jewish flavor. That's certainly because... Matthew is intending to show us that Jesus is the Savior who was promised to Israel of old, who was promised to Abraham and to David. But Matthew is not a hardline nationalist, so he's not saying that uh, only good people are in Israel and only the Israelites deserve to be saved. Rather, the, the Gospel of Matthew is largely an indictment upon the leaders of Israel, the, lead, the leadership class of Israel. He sees it as, as wayward and corrupt. That's something that you'll see throughout the Gospel of Matthew. The, the genealogy here in chapter 1 kind of descends into obscurity, right? You have the more famous names are early on, and then you kind of descend into obscurity. And that is kind of a picture of the way that Matthew views Israel because of the spiritual leadership, the scribes and the Pharisees. They are wayward and corrupt, But what he's saying is, this son of Abraham is the answer. He's going to be the one who can set right all of the things that have gone wrong in the nation. The promises to Abraham will be fulfilled in him. And the central promise to Abraham was that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. The blessing of Abraham that was to come to the the nations was not going to be the codes and the extra rules of the Pharisees, right? All of the, for instance, all of the rules that they had around the Sabbath. That was not the blessing that was to come to the nations. The blessing that was to come to the nations was this person, Jesus Christ, in whom we can be set free, in whom we can be forgiven. He is the true Israel in himself, the embodiment of all that the nation was to be, but failed. He fulfills it. Not only is Jesus, the son of Abraham, but he is the son of David. Abraham focuses us on the nation of Israel. David focuses us on the throne, the kingship. The central promise made to David is that his throne would continue forever. He would have a son who would establish an eternal kingdom. 
and whose reign would not end. If you read the life of David, you you at first think, well, maybe Solomon is that king because he initially seems to increase the glory of the 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 Davidic kingdom, excuse me, but then it sort of dissipates and deteriorates after that. The kingdom is split in two under Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and the kingdom does nothing but weaken after that with little glimpses of hope and light, but it's sort of a downward spiral from there. And so this son of David is going to be the one who fulfills this promise to David to set up an eternal kingdom. Matthew's genealogy, as I mentioned, is is largely one to show us that Jesus himself, considered as the legal son of Joseph, has a claim to the throne. Some commentators even say that all of the names in this genealogy are those who would have reigned in Israel had the kingdom not fallen apart. Son of Abraham, the son of David, and then it's also worth mentioning that Matthew calls him Jesus Christ, which is normally not what Jesus is called in the Gospel of Matthew, so it's noteworthy. He says this is Jesus Christ. Jesus is a name which means Savior. Christ, of course, is a messianic title which means anointed. The idea of him being anointed is obviously, as we know, that he's empowered by God the Father to fulfill his mission, to complete the work that he was given to do. Our catechism points out that he is anointed, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, to be our only high priest who satisfies divine justice as he offers up himself as an offering, and our eternal king who reigns and who conquers all of his and our enemies. So Abraham's promise, worldwide blessing, David's promise, an eternal kingdom, and his name itself, that he is a savior And he is sent by God to deal with that which is our chief problem, sin and death. All of these things in verse 1, Matthew is saying that this is the figure on whom all of our eyes should be. He was sent to bring blessing to the world. He was sent to usher in a kingdom that can never be shaken and never be taken away. He was sent to deal with our chief problems of sin and death. This is why Christmas is the foundation for everything. There is no hope unless a Redeemer comes, and unless this Redeemer comes. Most uh, commentators who look at this genealogy realize and understand that the names that are used here are presented to us for a certain reason. And they are presented to us in order for us to get a sense of the flavor of the ministry of Jesus. And so with some of the time, most of the time that remains, I want to talk about a lot of the themes of this genealogy because they tell us about the themes of the ministry of Jesus. What will his character be or what will his ministry be characterized by? That's one of the things that we learn as we go through all of these names. If he is a savior, what kind of a savior will he be? If he's a messiah, what kind of messiah will he be? So here's one theme, is this. God saves the obscure and the forgotten. God saves the obscure and the forgotten. There are many names in this genealogy that don't strike us as biblically famous. We don't really know hardly anything about many of these names except that they are here in this genealogy. And later on in the genealogy, 
in the time of the exile, there are many of those names that we've never heard of. But early on, right in the middle of a lot of names that we do recognize, there are uh, two names that we don't. And that's Hezron and Ram. So uh, William Hendrickson, a great New Testament scholar, says this. He says, Hezron and Ram, to us these are merely names. We do not even know whether they were men of untarnished or of spotted reputation. To God, however, they were important for the historical accomplishment of his plan to bring the Messiah into the world for man's redemption. So too in the church there are many who never make the headlines. Yet though unknown here below, they are well known above. One day it will become evident that the last will be first and the first will be last. It's a reminder, and that's not to say, as we unfold these themes, it's not to say that uh, all of these names are counted among the redeemed. But clearly Matthew is saying, these are the kinds of people who will benefit from this king and from this savior. And it's a reminder that God does not need fame in order to save his people, or he doesn't need famous people, that is. In fact, he often uh, focuses his attention on those who are less known. Isaiah 57 is a great promise fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But those whom he saves... He allows them to fulfill his purposes and to advance his kingdom. We don't need the recognition of men because daily in each of our lives, God gives us an opportunity to serve him because he has redeemed us and he empowers us to do his work. No matter how much that is noticed here below, we serve an audience of one. God saves the obscure and the forgotten. They they, they matter to him. Secondly, God saves the foreigner. God saves the foreigner. We find Gentiles in this genealogy. It is not just Jewish names. We find Canaanites like Rahab. Rahab, who is not uh, in the most honest line of work. She's a Canaanite prostitute. But here she is, one of the most unexpected people that you might uh, expect to see, right in the genealogy of Jesus. And this is something which glorifies God. He brings in those from all of the nations. And aren't we glad that the, nation, that the nations have been commanded to call upon God in Jesus Christ? Psalm 87 speaks of this, that there will be those who come from the corners of the earth to name themselves as citizens of Jerusalem. We actually find Rahab's name in Psalm 87. It says, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. That's Jerusalem. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. This one was born there. There will be those who are born on all the corners of the earth who ultimately say that their lineage comes from Jerusalem. Isaiah 56 speaks of this promise as well. What is the kind of God that we find in Scripture? He's a God who saves all types of people. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, we read in Isaiah, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. Right? God looks upon the heart. And as he saves and redeems the heart, he welcomes uh, 
people from all corners of the earth. Next, God saves the disregarded. God saves the disregarded. Rahab is, of course, a woman. And women occupy an important part in this genealogy. And normally we wouldn't expect to find the names of so many women in a genealogy at this time. We find the name of Ruth, a Moabitess. And of course, Moabitesses in the book of Deuteronomy, the Moabites were to be cut off from the worship of Israel. And yet God is saving them in the story of Ruth and in Ruth's being named here in this genealogy. You think of that scene in the book of Ruth where she and Naomi are there in the desert and this has been a group of, of three forgotten women disregarded, totally apart from sort of the center stage of what's going on in the world at that time. But God preserved them and then from that point forward he blesses Ruth and then from Ruth emerges a child that is named in the genealogy of Jesus. Society may have relegated women at that time to a place where they could be largely disregarded, but God considers them important enough to give his son so that they may be saved. One of the great emphases of the uh, the ministry of John Calvin is that in the Christian church, both men and women are equally worshipers of God called to love him, called to learn about him, called to sit under the preaching of the word. That's the way most men and women experience uh, fellowship and worship with God on a weekly basis, that we all sit under the preaching of the word and grow in him and love him and worship him. Wonderful promises of the Lord. Next, God saves the ones we think are beyond saving. We may say, well, that person is so far gone that there's no way There's no way that they could be redeemed. We're tempted to think that way. And we find a lot of terrible, awful sinners in this genealogy. Tamar, impregnated by tricking her father-in-law, Judah. Ahaz, a wicked king of God's people who was uh, known for sacrificing his own son to pagan gods. Manasseh, another wicked king. We find his story in 2 Kings. It says, Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. In other words, Manasseh led led God's people into such wickedness that they, they outstripped the wickedness of the nations around them, right? An absolute blasphemy. Because Manasseh, and the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. The point here is not to say that Manasseh is counted among the redeemed. We may not be able to answer that question from Scripture. But Matthew is saying, look at how near Jesus Christ is counted among these who came before him. Charles Spurgeon says, how near does Jesus come to his fallen race in this genealogy? Meant to show us, what is his ministry going to be about? That God saves those we often think are beyond saving. Next, God saves the ones that we think don't need to be saved. God saves the ones who are perfect, that we think are perfect, but they're not. 
Central in this genealogy, of course, is King David. King David is kind of the centerpiece of this other than Jesus. It's about kings. It's about the righteousness of the kingdom. David counted as a righteous king. But right as David is brought up, Matthew makes sure to bring up that event in David's life, which reminds us that he is a sinner just like everyone else. Not only does he bring up Bathsheba, but he brings up Uriah. This was a woman that David stole to be his own, and in order to make that, in order to smooth that over within the situation, he sends the husband of this woman to be killed on the battlefield. And it will be a son that emerges from Bathsheba who will be counted among uh, this line. It reminds us that there's no human boasting before God, right? If there's, there's any human in this genealogy that might consider that, it would be David or it would be those who would say, I descend from David. Matthew says, don't do that. God saves the ones we think are perfect, but they still need to be saved from sin as well. And it's only those who repent and believe. God saves relatives who embarrass us. As you you learn more and more about this bloodline of Joseph, Jesus' legal father, realize that there's a lot of things in the, the family history here that would make you blush, that you ought to be ashamed of, perhaps. And so one commentator says this, Our sins may have been as black and great as those of any whom Matthew names, but they cannot shut us out of heaven if we repent and believe the gospel. If Jesus was not ashamed to be born of a woman whose pedigree contains such names as those we have read today, we need not think that he will be ashamed to call us his brothers and to give us eternal life. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to be united with sinners whose actions would, in some ways, stain the reputation of an ancestor or a relative. He's not ashamed to be called the brother of sinners. God saves the captives. The end of this genealogy are those who were in exile. And we are captive to our sins and our sinfulness. Reminds us that God saves those who are imprisoned to their sin. He sets them free. This is the kind of ministry that Jesus will have. And so how do you sum it up? You come to the end of this genealogy. And Matthew uh, tells us how he's constructed it, right? 14 names and 14 names and 14 names, three sets of 14. That in many ways, uh, you go through all of the numbers and what they mean, right? 14 is two times seven. Seven is the uh, biblical number for completeness. And so you have this expanded completeness, whether you think it's a three times 14 or six times seven, all of these names totaling 42, And so you have six sets of seven, and that really what Matthew is saying there is that this is bringing us to really a a culmination of human history. That all of these names, 42 names, that brings us to the name of Jesus Christ really sets the stage for the life of Jesus to be that one human life that will sum up all of human history. And that everything will be summed up in him. And so we read in Ephesians chapter 1, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
Human history is summed up in Jesus Christ. From the Garden of Eden, the only reason that human history continues from that point is so that Jesus Christ would come. And the only reason that human history continues today is so that God may bring more sinners into union and communion with this Savior until the fullness of God's people is brought in, at which point Jesus Christ will come again. And so Matthew is saying... His gospel is about Jesus and have your eyes on Jesus and never take your eyes off him. When you're reading the gospel, when you're reading all of the scriptures, we read all of the scriptures so that we would know Christ and so that we would see him and so that he would become more real to us, not just in our reading, but in our living. So are the eyes of your heart on Jesus? Do you remain transfixed upon him? Do you keep him at the center of Of all things, Matthew is saying this is how important he is. All things summed up in Christ. Next, human will does not bring about salvation. Human striving does not bring about salvation. You come to the end of this genealogy and you have that jog, that change of the rhythm. If we're reading the King James, right, it's not Joseph begot Jesus. It's Joseph who was the husband of Mary to whom was born Jesus. Because he's born of a virgin. Because he was born in a way that was unlike any other name in this genealogy. And that was the kind of redeemer we needed. Not one born because of a human decision, but one who was brought about by the sovereign purposes of God. Because it's only God's sovereign grace that can save. It's only God's work that can save. Again, Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Salvation comes about because of a a conscious decision of God not because of a striving of human will. Salvation is about God who came down from heaven, not because we ascended to him. And then lastly, the last thing that sort of uh, is presented to us that ought to make us stand in awe is that he came. Jesus came. Not as a mere man. He came as the God-man. And it is true It is historical. It is the the foundational article of our faith that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, divine nature, joined itself to human nature, that he grew up, he was seen and known, he walked among us, he lived and he died for us and he rose again. He came. God walked among us in Jesus Christ. And since that is true, we believe that he will come again. He came. And he is coming again. That's what we learn. And that's one of the things that we learn in the genealogy of Jesus. It's true that Jesus Christ came. And Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. And he is coming again. Are you filled just as you recognize the hope that was fulfilled in Jesus' coming? Are you filled with the hope that he is coming again? As I said earlier today, this is the hope of Christmas. Not just that he came, but that he's coming We're filled with hope that we will see our King come once again. Would you live your life 
in happy and joyful expectation to see that day. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. We believe in his first coming, and we're filled with faith as we await the second. Let's pray. And so, great God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would turn the eyes of our hearts to Jesus. Focus our hearts upon him so that we would see and understand that life, purpose, meaning is found in him. Understand that he is the answer for our greatest needs. The son of Abraham, the blessing to the nations. The son of David, one who sets up an eternal kingdom. And confronts us with the question, do we belong to that kingdom? Do we believe in Jesus? Are our eyes fixed upon him? Grant us that faith. Grant us that humility to see him, to live in him and abide in him. To love him more. We pray in his name. Amen.